Good morning, everybody. It is a joy to be here with you and share the Word of God with you now at this time. We have been going through our sermon series on happiness, and today is our final one. And hopefully this will be a sermon that can wrap up what we have been talking about for the last four weeks. As we begin, let us start with a prayer. Oh Lord, you are the giver of joy. You are the source of happiness. We pray that now you would teach us your ways, that we may be able to walk and live in the joy and happiness that you give your children in Christ. Amen. Please turn with me to Micah, chapter 5, verse 4 to 6. Micah, chapter 5, verse 4 to 6. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. My friends, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. Please be seated. Some people have asked me, even the beginning of this sermon series, why I decided to choose this. Why did you decide to choose this topic to talk about? I don't really normally do a lot of topical sermons. So if you are new to our church, uh, that's something that uh, is interesting because I don't usually get topics and just talk about them. We usually just go through a Bible, verse by verse, a Bible book, verse by verse. And so why, the, why this topic of happiness? And so I've been asked that, and I, I do have a reason why, and I really do believe a lot of it has to do with, I don't think we know what happiness is. I think a lot of people think happiness is this. For example... Buying a 75-inch TV, only to get it and set it up, and then thinking, that was too small. Anyway, but happiness is something that we look forward to in a lot of things that we do, don't we? And then once we seemingly get it, it wasn't there after all, or it's not lasting. We look for a new car, new iPhone. Maybe we're not material. I just want to get married or something to that effect, right? And so what we want to do then is realize that perhaps this is not what we were meant to think when we think about happiness. But because we thought about this being happiness, now what we do is we are disillusioned, we say. Maybe I wasn't meant to be happy. Maybe it's just not for me. I'm a Christian, so I'll be happy in the afterlife, but 
this life is not something that I can really look forward to when it comes to happiness. And I think that's a lie. I think that's a devastating lie. I think that's a lie that so many people have bought into that when they walk the Christian walk, there is no joy in their footsteps. It's all trudging. Why is everything so hard? Why is this so elusive to me? Perhaps God will give me, but if he doesn't, you know what, that'll be fine. However, when you look in the word as we've been trying to go through for the past four weeks, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible consistently gives us reasons not to be only joyful and happy, but gives us cause to be happy and shows us the source of happy and secures in us the promise of happy. So when we think about that, then we start to recognize that the, what the world has taught us about happiness is actually not true. That we have been called to be happy and we are not just left to our own devices, just be happy, just get over it. But in fact, we are equipped to be happy. And so when I look around the church today, not our church, our church is full of happy people, but when I look around a lot of churchgoers or perhaps even young people, when you look at their lives, and even older people, don't get me wrong, just because you're young doesn't mean you're just full of only faults and you're old, you're, you know, exempt from this. It's not true. There's always something, right, that always triggers people. And it's, it's true also for older people. You say one thing and boom, they explode, right? But when you look at their lives, is it exuding happiness? And if your life as a Christian isn't exuding happiness, then is there something wrong? And I think there is. I think we need to look into that, don't we? Because when Jesus Christ would come, he would say that, I've come to give life and life abundantly. And so do we live according to what Jesus Christ has promised? I think that it's important that we do. That's why I wanted to talk about happy. I think it's important that not only you are happy, but you understand what happy is. So it's not something fleeting as what the world would try to say, show us, but it is something grand. It is something glorious. And so our final part in this series is the glory of happiness. Instead of chapters, I decided to only do three parts today. So it's a very simple, simple message. But in the simplicity of each point, I'm hoping to go deep. And hopefully uh, we can achieve that this morning. I'll be reading from multiple passages, not just from Micah. So we'll go through assorted scripture this morning, but the three points or the three parts I have today this morning is glory, worship, and grace. Glory, worship, and grace. So part one, glory, or what is glory? There are a lot of ways to understand glory. Before our sermon today, by glory, I mean brilliance. An effulgence, a radiant splendor. You know it when you see it because it is glorious. 
it has a majestic splendor. And from the get-go, I'd like to give you also the main point of the message. The glory of happiness is not in the talking. If you thought that because I talk about happiness, then that somehow translates into me being happy, then I'm afraid you are mistaken. The glory of happiness is not in the talking. The glory of happiness is not in the learning. Even if you listened intently, wrote notes, shared your findings in your small group, or even posted about it on your social media, I'm afraid that that doesn't mean you are happy still, or even going to be happy. The glory of happiness is not in the wanting. Just because you sincerely desire to be happy, you realize that a life of bitterness is not the way, and you determine in your heart, I will now be happy, will not translate into happiness. The glory of happiness is in the doing. The glory of happiness is in the doing. We have similar vernacular that we use today as well. You can talk a good game all you want, but you actually have to be able to play to get the glory because the glory of happiness is in the doing. And with each point, I'd like to go through a Bible passage. In Genesis 22, for this point, God tested Abraham by telling him to offer up his son, his only son, Isaac. And if you are familiar with the story, God tells him to do this, and Abraham obeys God to the T. He brings his son up the mountain, binds him, and right when he took his knife and was about to kill him, kill his son Isaac, the Lord would cry out from heaven and say, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for no, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That's the story in Genesis 22. I remember people asking this question, if God is all-knowing, and he is, and God knew that Abraham would have obeyed him regardless, and he did, why did God bother making Abraham go through all of that? God knows everything. He knows what you're about to do. He knows whether you will obey him or not. He knows the level of your faith. But why then would God make Abraham go through that? Now, while I think there are many lessons to glean from this narrative and this story, the one point that I think some might miss is precisely the one that was stated before. The glory of happiness is in the doing. I don't think, however, that what I just said should be necessarily taken as profound. I mean, if you love basketball, if you love knitting, whatever you love, you can study it, you can run through it in your head, you can speak the vernacular, you could jot down plans, you could strategize, you could even have dreams about playing basketball or knitting. But if you never play, no one will ever think that you're a good basketball player. 
It's when you start to play, you realize something. You realize the glories that entail playing the game or knitting or whatever it is that you really enjoy. It is the same with happiness. Learning about it is not enough. Talking about it is not enough. The glory is in the doing. And the reason why it may seem as though I am staying on this single, simple point for a bit is sometimes to unlearn something that was horridly wrong all our lives takes more than one swing of the sledgehammer. It takes multiple swings. In fact, for the truth to sink in, the happiness doesn't just come to you even if you sit on the couch with your hands open is something that I want to continue to hammer away against. You know, on a side note, the brilliance of what the founding fathers of the United States of America understood is that happiness is to be pursued. You need to do the happiness. And there is a movement involved when it comes to happiness. I had a conversation recently with friends of mine about depression. And they asked me what I thought about depression, what about clinical depression. And since I counsel a lot of people, I would share some of the experiences that I would have in counseling people that were diagnosed even clinically depressed. And then we got to thinking, we got to sharing as well. And I think a lot about depression. I think a lot of us here go through depressed times as well. I recommend books on depression to those that are going through it. And I enjoy listening to how God does lead his people out. But when you think about depression, it actually leads you to the opposite movement or non-movement when you think about the concept of depression. As you become more and more depressed, you tend to become more and more secluded, you tend to become more and more stagnant, and that vicious cycle repeats itself until you cease to move at all. And just like someone that suddenly opens the door to a dark room and the light violently rushing in and the person inside that dark room is jolted awake by this light, I pray that this truth also may be to those that have been stagnant and motionless in their pursuit. Part two, worship. It was always about worship. It was always about worship. I'm going to read to you uh, a section from Matthew 15 about the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. 
He answered, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is quite the amazing passage. And people have misconstrued it in recent days because they see it with a lens that is not biblical. That's quite unfortunate. I've even heard people read this and think that Jesus was sinning or he's racist or some nonsense like that. And we entirely missed the point of this passage. That's quite unfortunate because maybe even some of us would read this passage about the Syrophoenician woman, but we have a lens that's over us that would not help us see what this passage was about. This passage was about worship. This passage was about worship. What does this have to do with worship? You might wonder. I think the main point of this passage is actually worship. The Syrophoenician woman named in Mark as well, we are shown that this was a woman of this Syrophoenician background but lived in Tyre and Sidon. That means she lived at the edge or the outskirts of Israel. There's a lot of wordplay in this passage. And so if you miss it, you miss the point. She was at the edge of the country. She knew who she was. There is a wordplay that you can't miss. Just like crumbs would fall off the edge of the table, she lived at the edge of God's table, Israel. And she would say, even dogs eat from under the table. She lived at the edge of the table, but she recognizes also that she is a dog. That's a rough one, isn't it? She admits that she is a dog. A dog bows in subjection to its master. A good dog lies at the feet of its master. And she positions herself, then what? How? She positions herself at the feet of her master. That's what she is saying. To lie prostrate, then, is another word for worship. So yes, she worships Jesus. Now, when you think about this, and this is not a sermon on the Syrophoenician woman, but this is a passage that I like to glean this one topic of worship for us, for our benefit. Now, when you think about it, you might, you know, bring up this challenge. Pastor Eugene, are you calling us dogs? Are you calling us dogs? Are you calling this woman a dog and calling us dogs? Mm, no. No, I think dog is too high a term for us, actually. 
I think dog is too high a term for us. Do you think that you can compare the difference between a dog and its master, between the creator and his creation? Is that the same difference? If you understand your position, then you understand what worship is. Then you understand that when the Bible teaches us what worship is about, which is pleasing God, and hearing the word, praying the word, singing the word, receiving the sacraments, These things are duties, yes, but these things are duties that are performed with gladness, joy, and happiness. I'm going to give you another one that's somewhat controversial too because today is all about controversial stuff, right? There are two people that um, went into this place, two out of the ten spies, would go into enemy territory. And they would come out. And they said, we could take this. All the other spies said, we can't take this. We can't take this. This is crazy. Jericho is filled with huge monsters of people. We can't take this place. But Joshua and Caleb came out and said, we could take this. Now, the Hebrew word Caleb, the name is interesting, especially if you name your son Caleb which I don't think anyone here does. Caleb has the root, and if you know the Hebrew language, it's just, uh, you have to go through roots. Through the roots there, we have all these other words that come out. And Caleb, the root for Caleb is kalev, and kalev is actually another word for dog. So when the Hebrews would read this, Joshua and Caleb, you, it almost sounds like Joshua and his dog, because Caleb is Caleb. It's the same word. And then you start to look at Caleb's life. Who was Caleb? Where did he even come from? Caleb was not an Israelite. It says his father was Jephunneh, and he was a Kenizzite in Numbers 32.12. What's a Kenizzite? A Kenizzite was someone who was of Edomite origin, not Jacob, not Israel, but Esau. Esau's not Jacob. Esau's not Israel. That means Caleb was Gentile, not Jew. But Caleb, if you continue to read about what happens to Caleb, Caleb is actually given land. What land was he given? He was given Hebron. And if you went through the Samson series with me, Hebron means friend. Hebron is right under Jerusalem. There's this guy who's not even an Israelite. He's a dog. And yet he has been brought into the center, the heart of the table, Hebron. It's precisely through worship where we see God is engrafting us into his fold we are being called his children and he calls us his friend just as we saw Jesus do with the Syrophoenician woman that is done through worship my friends worship is not just some meager act that we do 
Worship is glorious. Worship is grand. It is incredible just to think about what worship does, not only in what we express, but what worship entails, accomplishes, symbolizes, should blow all of us away. But that's what we've been called to do in our pursuit of happiness. We've been called to worship God. What a privilege. What an honor. What made us deserve this kind of glory? I don't know, but we have been given this kind of glory. I want to go to our last part. Part three, grace. Or living in grace. There is a great deal of grace when living in happiness. And in the passage that was read this morning, there is a promise that is given through the prophet Micah. A Messiah will come and he will shepherd God's people. He will be their shepherd. That's a promise given through Micah. And this shepherd, this Messiah, will have the strength of the Lord and carry the majesty or glory of the name of the Lord. The whole world will know who he is and he will be their peace. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great shepherd of God's people. He is the one that gives us peace that the world cannot give because he is the Messiah. And so what does it mean to be the shepherd? He says it himself, in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Why, why is that? What, what does that have to do with shepherding? I have come or I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The reason why this is connected to being shepherded is because right after that well-known verse Jesus says in John 10 11 I am the good shepherd he says I have come that they may have life and life abundantly I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep So that we could have life and have it in abundance, Christ Jesus lays down his life for us. We were dead in our sins. Our rebellion against God made our minds dull to the truth of God. We could not appreciate the brilliance of his glory. Faith, love, hope, peace, and yes, eternal life, all the things that would give us happiness eluded us because these things rest in God. Going against God is not like a dog going against his master. It's more like a flea going against, well, God. The difference between the human and the flea is negligible when compared with the difference either of them have with God. The rebellion against God, however, had its consequences, and it has its consequences. Just like if a dog were to bite his master, death were, was the only punishment suitable for those that rebelled against God. 
But here is the incredible part. God in his great mercy toward us would send his one and only son, the one that he would tell Abraham to keep from giving to him, he would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, a son deserving that we should give up everything to him, and yet God gives up his son to us instead. And that's truly the amazing part, isn't it? That is the baffling part, isn't it? It was God's son who took on the punishment meant for this dog. And with that, God's perfect justice was fulfilled and his wrath atoned for. And now we must recognize that there is only one name under heaven that saves And for those that receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And as if that were not enough, because it is, there is more. I believe this because the Bible says so. And it says to us that God has our cup overflow. But before our cup overflows, this is what it says in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In our life, we will still face enemies like the Assyrians in verse 5 of what we read this morning. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, the Assyrians presumably at the time, took over the conquering reigns of the Babylonians, and that's why the Assyrian metaphor is used. And it's not to be missed, because the point is that no matter who the enemy is or what the strength of the enemy is, Jesus Christ is the true conqueror. Then he will, I'm going to continue reading from Micah again, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Jesus Christ doesn't come alone. He sends seven shepherds and eight princes. What does that even mean? Seven being a perfect number. He sent us the perfect number of prophets and apostles, which through whom he gave us the written word, the Bible. Eight is a larger number than seven, denoting the vast array of under-shepherds that he would send to us after the Bible was written. And this would be for the benefit of his church and for his glory. And that's why I'd like to note that there is no leader, no shepherd or prince that would act independently from the Messiah, the great shepherd. If you are a leader or you call yourself a pastor or an elder and you act independently of the Messiah, you are not a shepherd or leader. So where is Assyria now? Where is the enemy of God now or his people? It doesn't exist. Though some could claim that they have some lineage back to Assyria, it is impossible to verify. Their language 
The Akkadian language is gone. It is not spoken today. And when the empire fell, the settlements were destroyed. The revolts would even reach the main cities. All of the people in this empire were mass deported. They were all gone. So who can speak of Assyrian culture today? They cannot because it's gone. Christ has defeated the enemy of his people. The Syrians are a metaphor for the real enemy. Apostle Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The Messiah defeats our arch enemy, Satan, brings the world under his dominion, and we, his children, are given his victory. And now the Christian walks and may walk even through fiery trials, but understands that even through the fiery trials, it is the Son of Man who walks with us. And we are not singed. Our clothes aren't even burned. We don't even smell like fire. We can sing and pray hymns even in jail. And that power in that affliction would change even the jailer's heart. The jailer that was guarding Paul and Silas. You see, the glory of happiness is that it even guards us in the trials It keeps us even from temptation. It is the unhappy person, the unsatisfied person, whose eyes wander without realizing that they have the most beautiful wife at home. But it's the unhappy person that are discontent with their lot and believe that they deserve more and they go about trying to attain it through sinful means. It is the unhappy person that the devil fastens himself upon and stoking and raising levels of anger and bitterness. But happiness protects you from a plethora of temptations. That is the kind of grace that the children of God now walk in. No matter the situation, God fits us with the grace to match it. This is why there is great rejoicing. This is why there was great rejoicing wherever Christians went. There was great elation. They sang hymns, praises unto God wherever Christians were situated in. In whatever situation. And I believe that's what Ezra meant in the book of Nehemiah when he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We are powered by joy because of who God is. And so my friends, remember this when you are brought low. It is God who will lift you up and have you give worship to him. That's a privilege. Remember this when you are brought high. Remember the overflowing bounty in your life and give him worship. There is nothing now that could separate us from the love of Christ. And this is the promise that we also saw in Hebrews 13.5, that we can be happy with whatever state that we are in because I will, this is what he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And just as our wonderful youth recited last night, his steadfast love endures forever. That's what we've been given. 
how glorious is this joy, is this happiness that we have now in Jesus Christ. I exhort you now to go forth and live in the brilliance of happiness that God has given all his children. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we can see the brilliance of glory, of what you intend for your children. What a great honor it is now to respond in worship through our singing, through our listening, through our reading, through our praying, but with our lives. We ask God that you will receive our lives as living sacrifices now. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in this church. And lead us always as we hold on to the promise that you are with us now and always. Let us take this time to pray and reflect on what we have heard, what we have seen in this word, and let us offer up our lives to God in humble adoration and genuine worship to him who deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Thank you.